The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. To continue our series in First Peter, and I hope you've been blessed as you've heard some profound teaching from a guy who was a fisherman that Jesus called, uh, never went to Bible school, uh, but was trained up by Jesus and then trained others, and he was a guy who not only spoke words, but learned to live it out. And so I hope that as we look today at First Peter chapter 2, verses 11 to 17, uh, that God speaks to all of us and gives us something uh, that we can take home and apply in our day-to-day lives. So let's read, I'm going to read this and just reflect upon, as, as I read this out for you, reflect upon what are the commands here or the things that Peter is telling us that we should be doing. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak out against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. I remember as a kid that my dad had a rule. I had to read the Bible 30 minutes every day, and we had to start in Genesis and go through Revelation. And I did that about 16 times before I left home. And uh, I remember some books were really tough. I didn't enjoy them. I didn't understand them. And if you've read Ezekiel recently, you might uh, identify with how I was feeling. But one thing I like about Peter, it's not very fuzzy. It's quite clear what he's saying. The challenge for me is living this out. And so as we look at this, we see a few things. Uh, First of all, we see who he's addressing, and it really fits with us here. He's addressing sojourners and exiles. Now, I hope most of you aren't exiles, but we probably do have some exiles here. People who are away from where they came from, not by choice, but because of circumstances that happened to them. But a lot of us here are sojourners, temporary residents or uh, secondary residents, somewhere that we came from somewhere else and now we're living here. Um, In Peter's time, most of the people that received this letter had been forced out of Jerusalem, out of Israel, and were living all over the Roman Empire. And they were sojourners and they were exiles and they were living among people with whom there was war waging for their souls. And we here in Thailand live in a culture where there's war waging for the souls of men and women. And what is the war waging against our souls? It's not the government. It's not laws and policies and different things like that. It is the passions of the flesh that wage war against our souls. And this is what we see here. And so the crowd that Peter's talking to and we here are the same. So that's always helpful for me to know he's talking to me uh, when I'm reading something. Then the second verse that we're looking at is keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So he expands that idea of why should we abstain from the passions of our flesh? In addition to protecting our own soul, we are living as examples Our conduct is an example among those whom we live. So these are very straightforward. 
And uh, if just getting the message in our mind saying, what does that mean? I think all of us could pick that up right away. Uh, but the challenge is to actually do it. And so we're going to look at that today. Some tough questions about how uh, applying this can be difficult in our day to day lives. OK, then it says be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Now, to me, when I first read this passage, I I find it interesting, the things that are put together. So we're talking about internal battles. We're talking about having good conduct. And then he puts in here that we need to be subject to human institutions. And I looked up the word institution because sometimes I think of a building with a sign on it, a foundation. But it just means things created by men, things created by people. So in other words, not God's institutions, but things people created. And he gave examples here. The emperor at that time and also the governors, the local the local government. Why is that here? How, what does this have to do with waging war, uh, battling things that wage war against our soul and keeping our conduct, conduct among the Gentiles honorable? Let's look at what it says. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by do, so doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now, my oldest daughter, April, she's in college now, so I read a lot more news about what goes on in college campuses because I've been it's been a few years since I was there. And uh, so I and I, I just keep seeing all this weird news. So it wasn't just a couple days ago. I saw that this one group of students wanted to oust the dean of academics from this one university in California because they, they wanted to be free of this imperialistic Western view of history. And uh, it's like we're not having enough diversity in our, in, in our liberal arts curriculum. And so get this guy out of here. There's a sense of wanting to be free. Uh, history can't be changed, uh, but people want to be free of it. Uh, you can't change uh, what happened already. But in people's own minds, sometimes they have this sense, if I can just fight against it and, and ignore it, maybe it never happened. And I can pretend something else happened and that I'm a product of something else. There's this desire to be free. A desire to be free of rules, a desire to be free of uh, people in authority, the desire to be free of religious constructs. I just see this all over the place in the news. The, the, and it's not just the young people. We older people have that same desire. Uh, there's this sense we want to just be free. We, but I believe that this passage in First Peter is the true path to freedom. And it's in opposition to the path of freedom that we see in the world. Why should be a tough question? Why should we obey laws, rules and customs we don't agree with? And uh, I say customs there because when it said human institutions, it doesn't just say laws. It's talking about the things that people say you should do in the place that you're sojourning or you're exiled to. So why should we obey laws, rules and customs we don't agree with? Because I don't agree with a lot of laws and a, a lot of rules, um, including a lot of traffic rules. Why should I have to go only 80 kilometers an hour here when it's a big, wide road? Why can't I go 120? You know, those kind of things. Why do we need to do these kind of things? The first reason that we see here is our actions and reputation are the primary portals through which people see the glory of God. Matthew 5:16 says, let your light shine before men so that they will see your good works and glorify your father in heaven. So it's not so much what Peter is saying is we need to realign our thinking. It's not about what is convenient to me. What is what do I like? Do I agree with it or do I not agree with it? 
It's how am I living my life in order to be light so that the people around me who don't know Jesus can look into my life and they can see the glory of God. When my actions go against local laws or go against customs and and I am an obstacle to people, how are they going to appreciate the glory of God when they see my life? Sometimes I know there, there's some people that are conformist and some people that are nonconformist. And I'm sure in a crowd this size we have both. Some people, no matter what it is, I'm just going to be myself. I'm just going to, you know, however people are dressing, I'm going to dress how I want to dress. However people are acting, I'm going to act how I'm going to act. And you may have the right to do that. But the question is, is that beneficial for people looking into our lives and seeing the glory of God? Or is that something that just draws attention to us? On the other hand, just conforming to make people happy with us, to make people pleased with us, also doesn't show uh, the glory of God. What shows the glory of God is choosing voluntarily to submit ourselves to the laws and customs and the things that are around us that have been put in place by humans, even though we're free. We choose to do that so that they can look at our lives and not see obstacles, but see the glory of God. I'm sure it was very difficult for the audience that heard this from, uh, uh, of that Peter was writing to, which are Jews living in the Gentile nations. Jews had very strict rules and ideas of what was allowed and what was not allowed. And, and their laws were different. And then they're living in now they're living in Greece or they're living in Turkey, uh, Asia Minor, or they're living somewhere else. And now, and now they're hearing from Peter, their leader. You, you need to submit to those things, even the emperor. The second reason is that Peter says here is God uses our submission to put foolish ignorance to silence. And I think of Daniel. Daniel was used by God in many, many ways. I'm thinking of the time when he was in Persia, the later part of his life. And there were a couple of guys. He was one of three men who were right under the king in terms of their leadership. And uh, these three guys had a lot of power and influence. But the two uh, other guys were really jealous of Daniel. They didn't like his influence. He was a foreigner, for one thing. But they did something, something about him just rubbed them the wrong way. And they were looking for something that they could pin on him. They were looking at all the laws of Persia to see where had Daniel made a mistake. Where had he, as a sojourner in exile, not submitted to those rules? And they couldn't find anything except what pertained to his God. To me, that is something that, that, that puts foolish ignorance to silence. Because they had to go to the root issue. They couldn't blame him for this or that or something else. They had to put the blame for what they didn't like in Daniel's life on the fact that he loved God and he served God, which is why he was there and what he was doing. They didn't have any other things to bring up. But what about us? If people are trying to find something they can pin on us, saying, you made a mistake, you did the wrong thing. Are there things other than following God that they could put on us? And say, look, there's where you made a mistake. There's where you didn't obey the law. There's where you didn't follow what you're supposed to follow. And therefore, they could be spouting off, oh, even though you're a Christian, even though you claim to follow God, you're no different than the rest of us. Do you ever hear that in America? All Christians are hypocrites. Probably in a lot of Western countries you hear this. And you know what? The sad fact of the matter is a lot of people are. How often do you see a, a preacher get up and condemn something and then a month or two later, a year or two later, that person is doing that very thing? It's very often instead of focusing upon what's waging war against our soul and abstaining for those things, for the glory of God, living our lives in a way that honors the Lord and trying to follow all of the things that are that humans set up for the sake of showing the wisdom and the glory of God. 
we often go in the opposite direction and we're trying to look for freedom the way the world looks for freedom. And we're trying to assert our rights and privileges as religious people, but we're not waging war against the things that are trying to destroy our soul. So focusing on submitting to human institutions is not because we're slaves, but it's because we want to see wisdom of God triumph over the foolishness of man. And we don't want our lives to be something that people can pull out and say, look at this guy. He's a servant of God, but he's living foolishly. He's living wrongly, and therefore we don't need to listen to him or listen to her. And then we see another reason is right after this, Peter says in verse 16, live as people who are free. This is not a random statement. It goes together. Obedience is not a sign of bondage or weakness, but it's a demonstration of freedom and strength. The fact that we submit to these human institutions, even though we know we are children of God, even though we know we have been set free, we choose to do that, even though it goes against our feelings of comfort, even though it goes against what we feel like doing, that's a sign of strength. That's a sign of resolve, not of weakness. It's much easier for us to complain and to try, try to uh, stand on the edge. It's like, well, I, I, won't go, I won't violate the law too much, just a little bit. It's easy to be, do that. But it's much harder to say, I'm going to be resolved to not let anything in my life be an obstacle. That's a sign of strength and freedom that we can make that choice. So why should we obey laws, rules, and customs we don't agree with? If you summarize the whole thing, it's for the glory of God and so that people can see the glory of God and be transformed by it. So Peter is not saying this is easy. That's why it's a tough question. It's very difficult. How can we, living in a fallen world, knowing that the people who are creating these laws and rules and customs are fallen people, how can we choose to submit to such a thing? Even a harder question for me is, why should we submit to and honor dishonorable leaders? Now, I'm not going to get too political here, but we're coming up to an election season in the United States where dishonorable leaders is the best way I can describe some of the people running for office. Now, and it's not just America. You see that what happens in a lot of times, the people that rise to the top are not necessarily the people that you would say, these are the role models that I want my family to follow. And if anybody knew what he was talking about here, it was Peter. It's interesting, the last verse, after it says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, he threw in that little thing, honor the emperor, just to make sure you remembered that he was part of the everyone. And we could throw in the names of whoever we don't like in our country's politics and say, put that on the last line. What kind of guy was the emperor of Rome when Peter wrote this letter? Emperor Nero. Well, first of all, he was persecuting Christians actively at this time. He was also debauched and following all manner of sin openly in front of everyone and proud of it. He killed his own family members. He was blaming other people for the things he did wrong. He took no responsibility. And even people who were his friends would end up dead. Peter was not ignorant of this fact. It was well known. Likewise, the local governors were not any better. Think of Herod and his whole clan. Very debauched family. Pilate and all the Roman guys that were sent down. All of those guys were we're like many versions of Nero, maybe not just as bad, but following the same thing. Do whatever I want. I have power. I'm going to I'm going to take advantage of people for my own gain. That's the kind of people he's talking about. So how can we possibly 
submit to and honor those kind of dishonorable leaders? I think that's a very tough question. It's, though it's easy to understand the words of that, it just rubs me the wrong way. I don't think I should have to do this. To make it worse, it's not the only place in the Bible that it says this. In Romans chapter 13, another great teacher of the faith, Paul, said, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. He's, he's talking about the same guy, too, the authorities. Paul and Peter were contemporaries, same characters. This is even pretty strong here that it says God is responsible for the fact that that person is in office. People often have a problem with this. How could God allow someone like Hitler or Stalin or someone like that to be in charge of their countries? It doesn't mean that God condones what they did. It doesn't mean that God appreciates what they did or they're going to get off the hook for what they did. But it does mean that in God's big plan, he can use that person for his purposes, regardless of the ill intentions that person has. We think about Rome itself, though Rome was a terrible uh, example of, of, of holiness. It was it was a bad example. It was everything opposite from that. But the Roman system opened up transport so that the gospel could easily spread throughout the Roman Empire. That was the first time ever the gospel could have spread like that. The shipping lanes, the roads, everything was quick and easy. So God was able to use a human institution that was full of, of sin and full of um, things in opposition to him to allow his kingdom to spread in spite of that. We do not understand God's big plan. But sometimes looking back at the Old Testament, you can see how one nation came and destroyed another, and then that nation was destroyed, but God was working through it. And there is a remnant and a group of people that God pulled out of these places that followed him. So I cannot say why a specific person, God has put them in power. But Paul said clearly that we must be subject to them because by going against them, we are going against God himself. And so that is why, that is why we can submit to and honor dishonorable leaders. Not because they're worthy, but because God is worthy. Jesus is worthy. And he has a plan for this time with all the ways that things are set up at this time. And if you are worried about justice and you're saying, well, how can it be fair? The Bible is very clear in many times that God is righteous, God is just, and all who sin and all who persecute and oppress others will be judged. And that includes these dishonorable leaders. But that time may not have come at your country right now. So the first reason is why should submit, submit to an honor dishonorable leaders? Because that is what we are commanded to do. We respect and we honor God. And that's a choice. You know, we could say, well, it's I don't agree with that. I don't agree with God a lot of times. But the, still the matter is he doesn't change his opinion because of me and you. He doesn't ask us, what do you think? He says, this is what I desire. What will you do about it? And so if you feel like your leaders whether they're local or at the top level or dishonorable, let's honor and submit to them because God has asked us to. The second reason is God's love is unconditional and honor is a, as a kind of love. By honoring leaders, we are loving them. And God's love has never had strings attached to it. 
Actually, later, Peter says what? Honor everyone. He doesn't say just honor leaders, but I think he emphasizes the leaders because they're the hardest ones. Right? That's the ones we have excuses for. But actually, in my own life, honoring other people in my life is often difficult as well. And honoring everyone. How can we honor every single person, even our enemies, even those who hate us, even those that come against us? Because love is unconditional and honor is a form of love. Peter himself learned this through his life's steps of his life. He didn't love unconditionally and he didn't honor everyone when he first met Jesus. In fact, the disciples were always arguing about who would get the most honor. It wasn't about who can I honor today. It was how can I be honored? They had arguments about that all the time. And Jesus tried many different methods to teach them. Uh, he brought a child in their midst and said, if you want to be, enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to be like this child. You have to love unconditionally and follow with a meek heart like this child. They heard that. They saw that. Didn't quite get it. Okay. And he talked about some things like, well, you, the Gentiles are always competing for power, but it should not be that way among you. He who serves the most is the greatest in the kingdom. They heard that. Didn't quite get it. How many times have you heard something from the word? And it's in here, but it's still not here. Well, that's how Peter was. But one day, I think the lesson really sank in in two different times in his life that made him understand the unconditional love of Jesus and also what it means to truly honor. The first is in the upper room before the Passover, before Jesus was arrested, when Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. Now, when Jesus washed the feet of his disciples, he became a slave. He dressed like a slave and acted like a slave for them and used that as a lesson that they need to serve one another. They were very offended by that. They were very distraught by the fact that their master could do such a thing. And even later when they thought about it and they remembered who sat in the room and what those people did, it would have even made more sense how difficult that was. Jesus washed the feet of Judas. Jesus washed the feet of Peter himself who denied Christ. Jesus washed the feet of Thomas who doubted what Jesus said he would do and doubted the word of the disciples. And he, and he uh, washed the feet of all the other disciples who ran away in his hour of need. Looking back, they would be really amazed by that significant act of love and kindness. And washing someone's feet is a way to honor them. It's not just love. That's what you do to honor someone in that culture at that time. The second one is Peter, after Jesus is risen from the dead and before he returns up to heaven, he's at the lake and he asks Peter, do you love me? And Peter probably was thinking back about the times he denied Jesus. And he said, yes, I love you. And Jesus didn't say, well, Peter, you said that before and I haven't seen the evidence of it. But uh, if you get your act together, then I'll be glad to use you in my kingdom. He, he said, feed my sheep. He gave him a big job, the most important job. In fact, Peter discusses the feeding the sheep thing in chapter five, and it's going to come up later on in this series. Jesus gave him an important job out of grace. He honored Peter with an important role, even though Peter had totally failed him in many times in the past. So Peter, thinking of himself and how he was loved and honored by Jesus, would be able to have more power in what he's saying here when he tells us to honor those who are dishonorable because he remembers that he was dishonorable. I remember that I'm dishonorable and all of us have been dishonorable. And yet Jesus still loves us and Jesus honors us. 
Jesus honored tax collectors and, fair, and uh, prostitutes. He went to their homes. Going to someone's home as, an, as, a, as a rabbi or an ajahn, as we'd say in Thailand, that was honoring them. And that's why so many people were so angry at Jesus for doing it, complaining about it. How can he honor those people? He should come to my house. I'm honorable. They're not. Jesus honored people who were dishonorable. So if Jesus can do it and he tells us to do it, that's the only real reason we can give for why should we submit to and honor dishonorable leaders. It's not because they're worth it. It's not because they're worthy. It's not because we agree with them. So we had two tough questions already and uh, not tough to talk about, but tough to do. Why should we obey laws, rules, and customs we don't agree with? And why should we submit to and honor dishonorable leaders? Now, here's, the, here's those of us. There's all, but, but what if? Okay? Are there times when it's okay to disobey leaders and reject institutions? When I say institutions, I mean what Peter's talking about. Local government customs, rules in the area. Are there times when it's okay to disobey them? And uh, you might have different answers about this. I know sometimes when I'm not, I don't need to do it. But let's look at, let's look at uh, what I believe are not valid excuses for disobeying. Okay? The first one, it's not okay if it's based on preference. I don't like it. I don't agree with it, you know, so I'm not going to do it. And in a lot of countries, that never comes up. But in Western democratic countries, we're all about my preferences and my rights. And if I don't agree with it, I'm not going to do it. I don't see that exception here in this passage or anywhere else in Scripture. The second one, it's not based on convenience. So if it's convenient to do, yep, I'm in for it. But if it's not convenient, I'm not. I don't see that anywhere. Um, Expediency, uh, whether it's practical or not. You know, some... I don't know about you, but I don't find a lot of uh, Thai immigration laws to be very expedient. I don't find them to be very convenient. Uh, even 90-day registrations can take half a day, and, it's, and it can be so irritating. But it doesn't just say to go do your 90-day registration. It says to honor those people while you're there. Ah, now, that's different, isn't it? Yeah, because all of us are not going to get kicked out of the country or fine, but we might not honor them while we're there, especially with the person we're sitting next to, complaining about them all the time, looking at them, and, and even in their own face sometimes arguing with them, whatever the situation is. It's not about expediency. It's not about peer pressure. If other people are breaking the law or not doing it, it doesn't give us the right to do it, and it's not just about our opinions. So to me, I don't see any evidence in Scripture anywhere, and we only have a little time today, so we can't go over each one of these in detail. But I encourage you, if you think some of these are valid, look for the proof. Look for the proof in Scripture of why you can choose to disobey leaders or institutions based upon these things. And if you can find it, then uh, live by it. But I can't. But I do find a reason to, uh, to be able to disobey. Disobedience is expected of us if the person, law, or institution requires us to cease loving God or to cease loving our neighbor. In Acts chapter 5, verses 27 to 32, this is about the disciples were brought in before the Jewish council. And when they, the council, had brought them, they sat them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Okay, there's a law, a rule, right, that they were given. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us, meaning you disobeyed the rule. But Peter, the same guy who wrote the book we're studying today, and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. And then he explains, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior 
to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. In this case, the law that they were given, the rule they were given, required them to stop both loving God and loving their neighbor. They were not allowed to preach the gospel, which is the primary way that we love our neighbor, is to introduce them to Christ. And they were not allowed to obey the direct command of Jesus because what happened was they had been in prison already. An angel came and let them out of prison and said, go back to the temple and preach there again. Direct command of God. If they had obeyed the religious rulers instead out of fear or out of some other reason, they would have directly disobeyed God. Clearly, when that choice is there, we have to choose to obey God rather than men. But it's never about us and how we feel and whether it's good for us. It's whether it's good for God and whether it's good for others. Now, there are some people that take this to an extreme. They say, well, these kids are being exploited, so I'm going to kidnap them and take them out of the country. That happened in Haiti some time ago. They broke laws because they said they were loving their neighbor. Okay, we can use this as an excuse to to warp, have warped thinking. We need to make sure that whatever we are doing, that we are that we are using as an excuse not to obey the laws and the people that were, they are leading us is something that we are 100 percent is from the scripture and from the mouth of God, not our own thoughts and our own interpretations. We have to be very careful there. Righteous, but this is this is a hard part. Righteous disobedience does not give us immunity from to the consequences. Sometimes it does. Remember Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. I love that story growing up. They didn't worship the idol. They got thrown into the fire. That was punishment. But hey, they lived through the fire. They came out unscathed. Everything was great. And it's like, that's what will happen if you follow God rather than men. But Peter, who wrote this book. And Paul, who wrote what we saw in uh, Romans 13, both of them were executed by the emperor Nero, who he's talking about right here. So not always do we get off the consequences. When we choose to disobey because we're following God, we, do, we have to understand the laws of the earth are still the laws of the earth, and we may still have those consequences, but we're okay with that because we care more about the glory of God and more about the kingdom of God than our own convenience. So we do have to disobey But most of the times when I disobey, it's not because of that. I have to be honest. Most of the time when I disobey, it's because I don't agree with it, I don't like it, or it's not convenient. And I may do it, but I don't do it in an honoring way. This is the hard part. It's not just obey, but it's submit yourself. Submit yourself is different than just obey. Submit yourself is to put yourself voluntarily under the authority of that person and say, I will honor you. Very difficult to do. But I think if we look at this passage, the the key phrase here that I brought up once already, and this is what I want us to focus on as we close this time together, live as people that are free. Peter is not giving us these instructions to add more burdens and add more laws and add more things that we have to follow. Say, do these things or else uh, this is the rule, this is the law, and, and God's ready to strike you dead if you don't do it. No, he's saying live as people who are free. All of this relates to freedom. Freedom involves these things. And that just just is in opposition to the thoughts of the world. As I talked about earlier with my daughter in college and reading the news. People today cannot imagine how submitting yourself to someone means freedom. It's throwing off the yoke. That's freedom. But Peter is saying, no, that's not what it means to be free. 
Let's look at some details we see right here in this passage about what he means by live as people who are free. In verse 17, fearing God, he said, he said, honor everyone, love the brotherhood and fear God. That's very important. Fearing God brings freedom from foolishness and destruction. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and, and all knowledge. If you want to be a person who is wise, who is productive and fruitful, then you need to have wisdom. If you're going to have wisdom, you have to fear God. And Jesus also said in the parable of the two houses that, on the foundations that the one who hears the word of Jesus is like the man who builds his house on the rock. And if he obeys, but if he hears and doesn't obey, it's like the guy who builds on the sand who's foolish. So fearing God, obeying God brings freedom from foolishness and destruction because when the storm came, the foolish man's house was destroyed. So that's the first thing that we see if house fearing God relates to living as people who are free. The second one goes back to the beginning verse about abstaining from the passions of the flesh. Holiness demonstrates freedom from selfishness and greed. Holiness doesn't free us from selfishness and greed. We can't do good works in order to to heal ourselves. But if we have been healed by Jesus, if we have been transformed by him, the holiness that comes out of our lives demonstrates that we have become free or are becoming free from selfishness and greed, which is always wanting for myself. Abstaining from the passions of the flesh demonstrates that you are free. It's easier to Fall in line with the passions of the flesh. Go along with them than it is to abstain. A free person has the power to do it. Submission demonstrates freedom from fear and anxiety. See, the thing is, if I'm afraid of, of the people in authority, if I'm afraid of the government, I'm afraid of the laws, and, and therefore I don't want to follow them, it, uh, that, that is a life of fear. But if I can voluntarily submit, it means that I trust in God who is sovereign to take care of me in spite of those dishonorable leaders and in spite of those laws that I don't understand and don't like. Because I trust him, because I know he is powerful and he loves me, I can submit to those things in obedience because I have no fear and anxiety. But if I am afraid and anxious, I cannot submit. I'm always looking out for myself and building walls around myself and trying to protect myself and throw off people's yokes. Honoring others. And this is where it says honor everyone. So not just the king, not just the leaders. Honoring others demonstrates freedom from pride. When I lift someone else up and I'm willing to serve them and I'm willing to let them get credit for something instead of me. When I'm willing to uh, uh, allow other people to praise another person instead of me. This shows that pride no longer controls my heart. But that's not the way of the world, is it? The way of the world is to push myself up. i got to get myself up so everybody can notice me. That's not free. That's bondage. But if we are free, we can honor others because we know we are secure in the hand of God. We don't have to climb our own ladder. Jesus has already lifted us up into heavenly places. Unconditional love, which he says love the brotherhood. That's agape, by the way, so that's unconditional love demonstrates freedom from envy and partiality. Conditional love is easy. Unconditional love is much more difficult. If you're envious or you think some people are more worthy of love than another, which is partiality, that is bondage to sin. But when we are free, unconditional love is a sign of that. And then he says to live as servants of God. Faithful service guarantees freedom from futility. If I am serving myself or someone else, I am guaranteed to have futility be the result of my actions. 
because I do not have the wisdom to know how to build eternal fruit. Only Jesus, only, only our Heavenly Father has a plan for eternal fruit. And so if I serve him faithfully, I can be guaranteed to not have futility result from my actions. Um, that's the picture we see when there's the, the foundation and the, all the things of our lives are there and the fire is lit and the things that are gold, silver and precious stones remain. The wood, hay and straw is burned up. To me, that's a picture of the things that God did in my life that I followed him faithfully in will remain. The things that I created of my own will burn up and be gone. It was futile, regardless of how well I liked it or other people like it. So in this passage, we can see the keys to living as freed, free people. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 to 23. Paul says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though myself not being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law. This is talking about the Jewish law, not about the law of the land. Um, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. So I encourage you today, as I'm encouraging myself, let's have the perspective of the supremacy of God and the, and the high value of other people. As our focus, not ourselves, not our own convenience, not the things that we desire and we want and we feel like. Let's have Jesus be supreme in our lives and let's have the goal of sharing him and his glory and love with others be the reason that we honor and submit to those in authority over us. And also be the reason that we abstain from the passions of the flesh. And also be the reason that we conduct ourselves in an honorable way among the people that we live. And also why we honor everyone, including the king. And also why we love the brotherhood and fear God. All of those things are signs of people who are free. So if you've been freed by Christ, then you have the power to do these things, and so do I. Today we're going to celebrate communion, and the worship team can come up. I want us to think about the, where the power came from for us to be able to do this. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.